Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by a student of Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. And um, again, thanks everyone for coming. I know uh, there's like a couple big things that are competing for people's time right now this morning. I know there's, for one, the 49ers game, and then um, Alan Wallace is speaking at... uh, yeah, a lot of people are over there, so I appreciate you for being here. That's, that's really awesome. So um, about a couple months ago, I gave my first talk, and I kind of did like an intro on my experience, um, how I came to the Dharma, and kind of my direction, what I'm doing with my life and time, including Dharma, in my life journey. Um, and my kind of, my big goal is to work in like restorative justice uh, in helping people who have uh, done harm to others um, come to a realization of the harm that they've created and then do something in order to to make right. So it's it's a way to divert away from the criminal justice system so that people hopefully ideally don't have to go to jail, go to prison. So a huge part of that is having to learn how to communicate. Um, and that's a huge piece that, that I'm working on myself is how do I communicate in order to, to get my needs met for one, but also to see the other person and to hear their needs and have it be a mutual kind of thing. So I'll be talking a little bit about that, um, and kind of nonviolent communication, but it's a two part talk. So today's part one. And so you got to come back February 23rd. <laughs> and so, so uh, you, you got a month, and uh, I'm going to be talking about the actual skills, like actual tools of nonviolent communication that you can use. So that's like the real juicy stuff that you want to come back for. Um, so this first part, again, is going to be an introduction kind of to the ways that we tend to communicate within samsara. Um, so samsara, does, does anyone have like a good kind of quick definition? What is samsara that they want to share out of these folks here, maybe? <laughs> yeah, so Marie was kind of going like this, like, it's where we live. It's like the world of suffering um, and experiencing suffering. So I'm going to be talking about the tendencies of how we communicate within samsara and then also um, <clears throat> how to apply dharma when thinking about our communication patterns. So I'll, I'll be sharing some personal stories, and I'd also like to encourage um, people to interact and, and share their stories as we go along, and I'll, I'll kind of open up the floor for people. Um, and my references for this talk is just it's darshan, which is the, the personal one-on-one meetings with our, our teacher, Lama Jempa. Um, and then my own personal experiences. So that's all I got. So um, in samsara, our communication is generally all about bringing it back to our personal self. So the kind of like I, me, mine, ego. Um, so, so what do Buddhists mean when we talk about the self? Is there... Someone who wants to kind of comment on, like, what is that self? 
or do you want me to just share it? Okay, <laughs> we're still getting warmed up. <laughs> um, so the self is that idea that our identity is fixed. So we exist outside of everything else. That kind of idea almost that we're an island. Um, we're not impacted by other things. We're this kind of fixed identity. We've always been this way and we can't be changed. And so what happens with that is it leads us to kind of affirm that our personal opinions, our beliefs, and our experiences are also solid and fixed. And generally the kind of uh, mode that we move through the world and in our relationships and through life is that I am right and also I am not you. I am me and we are separate. So kind of think about when we're communicating in our relationships, what happens when we're praised? Like something goes well and we're given some praise or someone says something that's really like in agreement with our opinions and it's really, we kind of like vibe with that person and it's like, oh, you get, you get me. We get each other. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So you get me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we think that that's good. Like that's a good experience um, and we like the other person for it. So we kind of think about our friends who we tend to hang out with. They're going to, generally be people who have somewhat similar opinions or, or experiences or beliefs. And that's not necessarily bad, but it's something to observe. It's something to look at. And then on the other hand, when we're being criticized, think of an experience where we've been criticized, maybe even like a um, constructive criticism. It can be really, really difficult to receive that. Um, or someone has like a different opinion, a different belief, a different experience of the world than we do, um, we feel like that's bad and, and we don't like the other person for it because it feels, it feels different and um, it doesn't affirm our fixed idea of our, of our place in the world. So that, that is samsaric communication where we're really, when we're in relationship with others, we're really fixed in our identity and our opinions. So it always refers back to the self and whether our view of ourself is being held up or in some ways we feel it's being pushed down. So the Buddha really rejected this Hindu concept of, of the Atman. Have people heard that term before, the Atman? So it's this, it's this concept um, that there's a permanent uh, kind of fixed soul-like identity or essence to each of us. Um, and that kind of rings a bell with folks who have grown up like with Christianity. There's you know, this soul that's kind of like outside of us, and that's our real fixed identity. And he rejected that notion because what it does is it creates this separation from where we are right now, which is, this is our condition. Um, and it rejects that notion that we are independent from each other uh, and permanent singular entities. 
So I'm going to share just a, a, a quick personal story that kind of, for me, it, it really brought out um, this experience of the self for me, where I really got to see it. And um, so I work with kids. I work with kids at Sacramento Children's Home. Um, they're youth who are struggling with mental health issues. And it's interesting because when I work with them and they're kind of like confronting me with something, I actually don't get bothered by that at all. When it's a kid, I feel like I'm really like, oh good, this is such a good time for me to model like good ways to communicate and to not like necessarily get defensive and, and all that. But there's this experience where it was a parent a parent got really upset with me. And the situation was that, so generally I, um, I call the parents before I'm going to meet with a kid for the first time. I let them know, you know who I am, what I do, et cetera, that I've been referred to by the therapist. And usually things go very kosher, like nothing, nothing wrong happens. And um, so let him know that. Then I also contacted the kid and ask them, like, hey, when's a good time for you to meet up and all that? And we planned that. And then went to the dad again and, and let him know. And he flipped out, got very upset, and, you know, was saying, like, you know, how dare you schedule something with my child without, like, asking me first about, like, our schedules and all this. And in my mind, I was thinking, most parents that I talk to are so glad <laughs> that I'm going to be taking them out for like two hours you know most parents are very excited and so in my like I just felt this kind of rising like I just want to blurt all this stuff out <laughs> you know like that and also um you know just like this is like a good thing like why are you upset <laughs> you know um but what I really had to do was just kind of uh first calm myself because I wasn't used to that kind of like intensity um, and then kind of try and find, like, where, where was this coming from? And uh, the way I, you know, what I realized was that he, he felt threatened. And whatever it was that uh, made him feel threatened, uh, his self feel threatened, um, I needed to just kind of hear it. And so while that kind of, like, defensive side did come up, and to be honest, like, I did have a little bit of defensive communication initially, because um, I felt that self arise where I was like, but this is, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not wrong. <laughs> um, it ended up being okay, because it was just kind of like, you know what, you're right, and I apologize. Um, and, and we were able to work something out after that. But... That's kind of like an extreme example uh, when we're like in major conflict, like our self really arises, right? Um, where it just really feels like, but I, I, I don't understand where you're coming from at all. Um, so that's just one little example. Um, and, I, and I also wanted to share kind of that this happens on levels that are much larger too. It happens on cultural levels between people. So one thing that, that happens frequently um, is the kind of like micro, have you heard the term microaggressions? So microaggressions between people of different races. So oftentimes white folks feel really threatened by 
mentions of racism. And white people feel really upset when people call them out for, for racist behavior. Um, so there's this little insult, micro insult example that I found um, that I thought was interesting. So an Asian American professor is asked where she is from. And when she replied, Kansas, her student responds with, no, seriously, what country are you from? Suggesting that she was not born in the US. So this is kind of one of those situations where it feels like from the perspective, it could feel like from the perspective of the student, this might not actually be intended as racist or racialized, but how it's received by the person on the other end um, could certainly be felt as racialized. And if that professor responded kind of informing the student, you know what, this, this feels like a kind of you know, undertone of, of racism. There's, there's a chance that that student might respond very defensively and say, no, I'm just wondering where, where you're from. And so this is kind of one of those moments where the reference point of the person receiving that microaggression is very different from the reference point of the person who's causing that harm. And so when we're called out for that kind of behavior, it's not that we're bad people. I think most, a lot of people who are called out for that kind of behavior don't intend to do harm. But we have to kind of just hear it from the point of the person who's receiving that harm in order to begin to understand each other's positions in the world and how they're very different. So I think that's just another example that I, I feel is really important to, to bring up and talk about. Any questions so far? Any comments? I mean, that's the, I mean, people, I mean, communication is not what you say, it's what people hear. That's what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. What they hear, it's not what you say. You can right. communicate and that's it. Right, right. Get people their point. Yeah, it looks like Dirk's got a, a comment, question. In that situation, though, there is a, the question had an assumption behind it. Yeah. Uh, which, maybe the way to deal, I, w I wonder, I wonder if the way to d respond to a question like that, which comes from an assumption, which yeah. is a racist assumption, Right. The assumption is that white people are from here right. and anybody else is from somewhere else. Right. Uh, that it would maybe the best, re a good response would be, why did you think that? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really, uh, yeah, good, like kind of opening up the, the discussion to, to turn it back to the other person and kind of to... It is, yeah, it, to, to help them kind of see their subjectivity too, their position. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, so what would it be like to not always be communicating with reference back to that dualistic samsaric self? Um, and by, by dualistic, I again mean that kind of false idea that we're separate individuals and, and different from each other. Um, so, so in this temple, we're doing this Buddha Dharma program. It's a study program for folks who have taken refuge where we're reading these um, uh, texts, these original texts. And um, 
these texts really cut through our assumptions about the self and how we exist in relation to others. Um, so Nagarjuna, Tsongkhapa, Kandrakirti, and others, um, they all expose this emptiness of the self, um, that it, it doesn't inherently exist. And what they mean by inherent existence is that assumption that we all have, that we are those solid, singular entities, um, that we, we go through the world uh, kind of feeling like we're the center of everything, that we're the center of the universe, the subject of the universe, <laughs> even. Um, and uh, that, that, that all of the people and creatures are objects within that universe. Um, so while we may not be you know, consciously holding that idea in mind or outwardly believe this, um, it certainly comes out in the ways that, that we end up communicating with others. So you know, our needs, our opinions, our beliefs, they're always central to the samsaric way that we communicate. Um, and, you know, obviously we can see pretty blatant examples of how that type of communication and how that way of going through the world has really caused incredible harm. Um, you know, we think about things like the, the Me Too movement, um, even climate change, you know, these things really come back to this fixed sense of self that we're you know, everything else is just objects in our, in our world. Um, so how does this change? How, how can we bring a change um, with this? Um, when we begin communicating with the knowledge of the interdependence of, of all phenomena, and how does this change our reference point? So the Buddha taught that we are interdependent, that we are not separate from each other and from, from the world that we live in. Um, and, and when we are no longer the only subject, the only subjectivity amidst myriad objects, um, and instead recognize the subjectivity of, of all others, um, we can no longer only consider our own feelings, experiences, opinions, and needs we begin to recognize the needs of, of other subjects. So I'm gonna kind of pose a, a little thing to some folks who know maybe just like a brief definition of interdependence or even just kind of idea, like what, what is interdependence? And you know, we're not gonna be talking from the point of view of, of like an enlightened point of view, but that's okay, we can talk like as, as lay people. Yeah. That's, I think, definitely, yeah, definitely a part of it, yeah. Well, it's like cause and effect, you know, all of our actions have ripple effects that affect others in myriad ways yeah. that we may not even be aware of. So cause and effect, all of our actions have impact on each other and on the world. Yeah, back there.
Mm. Okay. The other. So like if I'm doing like the whole concept of just like the eye, right? I'm like the island. If I'm just doing something here, interdependent would mean that it's still affecting me. Right? Yeah. Right, it's not just me. I'm I'm moving through a world that you know we're all impacting each other. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Lama explained that uh, interdependence is actually it's incredibly simple, but due to our conditioning, um, it's really difficult for us to understand. And um, in our last darshan appointment, he, he illustrated for this for me um, by, he just reached out his hand and we touched fingers and, and he told me that's the definition of interdependence. We're each having our own private experience of what that physical action does and yet we can only experience it through the touch of two subjects' hands meeting in the middle. So we're all having our own private experience, but our private experience is dependent on our interaction with others. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. Yeah, go ahead. So all that ties into how we communicate with each other? Like yeah. there's multiple forms of communication? So, so when we're communicating, we're contacting each other's privacy. We're contacting each other's private experiences. So when I was talking about that self kind of arising, when, when we're communicating, we're, a we're able to get towards that personal experience of another subject. And um, it, it can be very intimate, right? I mean, I'm sure people have had the experience of when you've had a, like a great experience of being able to communicate with someone and you really feel like, uh, like maybe you got somewhere with this person and like uh, that thing of like, oh, I really understand what's, what this person meant. And you kind of feel seen, right? And the other person feels seen. And, and that's a little bit what it is, um, is, is being able to contact each other's private internal experiences. Um, you know, and particularly when we're in conflict, we really want to shield that private experience even more. Um, and this limits the possibility for that contact, for that communication and that connection. Um, so in part, in part two of the talk in February, I'm going to be um, sharing some of the, the principles of nonviolent communication, um, such as active listening, affective statements, um, and really the details of, of how those work and how to practice those in your daily life. Um, and those are really good starting points uh, for helping us remove some, in, some of those barriers to intimacy when we're communicating through conflict. Um, so we can take these methods a step further and recognize that also through our training in meditation, which I think is like, it's really the foundation to begin kind of uh, taking apart this idea of, our, of the self. Um, we can further this and the study of meditation to really sense and experience the interdependence with others 
And then from there, we can really reduce our infatuation with ourselves um, and, and while we're communicating, and particularly in conflict when that self arises. So you have to, you have to come back for more for those skills. <laughs> this is just a little teaser. But I really wanted to, to open it up, open up the floor, um, and first maybe ask for some, some questions, comments, and complaints, as Lama likes to say. So let's, let's put it out there, questions. Roberto. I think uh, about inter interdependency, uh, one way, very scientific way I, I like to look at this is that, like imagine that there is this huge organism, huge, huge organism, and uh, inside of this organism are all kind of cells, and there is cells that are burning and cells that are dying all the time. There is a replacement. And they are all part of the, the organism is nothing else but the the sum but the addition of all those organisms. So the problem is that uh, with human beings, what we do, we start to have a belief system. So we sit together in a room and we have a discussion: Are we interdependent or not? When we are just being interdependent all the time, having the discussion or not. So like if you see the trees, they are all connected to each other and all connected to the birds and all connected to the earth and the water and everything is connected to everything. But there is no a question about this disconnection. So with human beings, we have a history. The ego is formed based on our history. It's like a, a defense mechanism. And the best way to, be def to defend is to create the idea that I exist separately from others. And there is something to defend. So the concept of ego is what makes me one person. Some, uh, uh, it's what makes me to miss the interdependence feeling that yeah. is all the time. It's, it's just being just being and you are connected to everything you don't there is nothing that you have to do yeah so. no that's really helpful and and beautiful um yeah we're all in this together very just plainly simply yeah. Yeah. i feel like the ego helps you experience the self. Like, if you use it as a tool, you know, when you're trying to get into the inner workings of yourself or how you think, like, your identity or, like, you know, what you believe, right, experiences, I feel like you could use the ego to see who you are, what you are, you know, as a tool. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. And so the whole concept of... Um you know, that the, the self is, is empty of inherent existence, there's the other factor of that, that, but it does exist conventionally. So on an ultimate level, it doesn't exist. But on a conventional level, it does. And that's why those things like, um, like experiences of racial bias 
or experiences of gender differences. Um, those are very real impacts and they can't be ignored, right? Um, and they can also help us see how to communicate with each other and what maybe we're missing. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you that, that this, this is what we have in this life to work with conventionally. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Elizabeth. I'm curious, because um, I have an, an internal feeling when I think about lack of self or interdependence or the fact that the table doesn't exist or fire and fuel, or past, present, and future, or seed, <coughs> seedling and bloom don't exist. I have an internal feeling. What, What's your internal feeling when you open up and grok uh, interdependence? Mm -hmm. So like kind of when I'm just thinking about it, contemplating it? Yeah, and then yeah. when you're, when whatever that view is that you have sort of relaxes mm. a bit. Yeah, you know, my experience reading Nag Nagarjuna kind of was that, like, being hit, just, like, hit constantly over and over by, you know, the same idea. And in, in some ways it was like, well, I'm not going to understand this <laughs> right away, um, maybe ever. But there is that feeling that, like, oh, I don't need to hold on so tightly. I don't need to hold on so tightly to these things that I've, I've felt like are, are me, you know? Um, so it is kind of a relief, even though I don't totally get it, you know? It's a relief to know that like, okay, that part is, it doesn't ex inherently exist. You know, I had a really big trouble with fire and fuel the self didn't bother me, but fire and fuel really bothered me because of all the fires and uh, uh, our environment currently. And uh, so this is a chapter in one of the Buddha Dharma texts about fire and fuel, and it's saying that you know it's empty. Neither of those exist. Exist. They're but they do exist conventionally, inter inter interdependently, <laughs> and in conventional yeah. reality. But it took a lot of contemplation to get so I could semi begin to recognize it, and then to think about climate change together. Yeah, that's a struggle. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. We got Kathy. into uh, working with people. Uh, I've learned through motivation and through working with Lama is um, what is my motivation? Mm. Um, and a lot of times once I stop and think about that 
it helps to let my ego go. This is not about me. This is about the tools that I have to either help someone else or to bring an awareness to them or answer a question that they might have. And, you know, Elizabeth, that's really interesting about fire and fuel because I think about that a lot. And I suffer because I see all those pictures. The animals, and they're burned. And mm -hmm. But um, Dr. Wallace talked about how the earth was here based on some scientific evidence way before man was here. And these phenomenons have been going on and it, it helped, it, it healed itself. Mm. Then man came and because we were given this intelligence, we developed a lot of things that create this. So I'm just wondering <laughs> if this is a war going on between man and this nature that's happening, that's always been happening much before man got here, but this is somehow we have to look at it as a learning tool and not so much sadness, even though there is sadness. I mean, there's a lot of sadness when you see people losing their homes and their animals and, you know, things are going to change for them and that's hard. I don't know. That's kind of how I, I look at it because I suffer when I see that. It's terrible. And that's, that's why the, you know, the Dharma is such medicine for this time, because it's really teaching us how to deal with that kind of separation that we feel that's, that doesn't, that's false, yeah. and that's creating these really horrendous conditions, yeah. yeah. Another comment? One day at a time. When there's so much suffering going on, you know, you know, in your life or in the world, right, or even right in front of you, just go within and you know, just take it one day at a time. And, you know, that's how I do it. Sometimes it <coughs> could bring me, get you really emotional, bring you to tears where you feel like you can't even go on with your day or can't even go to work or go outside your house. I just find the time to just breathe, meditate, and go within. And then then I'm able to summon up the strength, you know, to like go out and just do my regular things that I need to do. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Yeah, our shamatha meditation is so wildly important. <laughs> um, we, have a, we have a lot of meditation groups at the temple, just going to put a plug in, um, and, and a lot of them are just shamatha meditation, where we learn how to, to sit and focus on one object, when a lot of times that's our breath. Um, and it really, really helps uh, settle, settle ourselves. But then also in the communication piece, it really helps us focus. So when we're with someone and listening to their experience, we're not so quickly going to jump into our experience. We're, we're focused. We're listening. So I highly recommend developing a daily meditation practice. Yeah, I think Sue's got a comment. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate 
what you're talking about. It's quite, um, because I believe very strongly that we need to be extremely careful in our speech and use right speech and be connected to what we're saying to other people. But as you were exampling, giving the example of the professor, um, I too have had some examples where I you know, was in, um, offended and wanted to react or defend myself or um, my being mainly, uh, I'm a teacher, and I've had experiences where people, I guess, had negative feelings about that profession for their own reasons. And, uh, you know, would, I'd make some comments and they'd say, oh, just like a teacher. Hmm. And so I would immediately go, well, what, that's a really good thing, <laughs> just what you were saying. You know, or I didn't mean anything bad by what I just said. So, but then I, I was thinking that that experience, I think the person who feels offended needs also to find out why am I feeling offended and kind of examine them because what happens is if I just feel offended and don't take any responsibility for my own feelings, I'm going to lash out at the other person. And I think where these big conflicts um, like climate change and, and political conflicts and racial conflicts, all kinds of conflicts are because both parties are not looking within and they're identifying with their own ego. Mm -hmm. Like I'm identifying with my teacher ego. I am a teacher mm -hmm. and therefore I am great and single and boy I'm important. So I think we have to be really careful not to be judgmental about the person who just said the thing that offended but that the person who was offended needs also to look within and, and examine their own feeling of ego. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think that, yeah, that practice of, um, you know, looking at these things that we really strongly identify as, is going to be really helpful for everyone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Something like that happened uh, during the first uh, Paris Accords for the climate change. Both sides were at an impasse and they took a break. And then one of the leading negotiators uh, took a break at uh, Nhat Han's retreat place in France and brought back some uh, of what we were talking about, of seeing the other person mm -hmm. as having you know, they came from other conditions which caused them to have that viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Instead of attacking them, uh, seeing how what we all have in common, and because of taking that attitude in the negotiations, uh, they came up with an accord because both sides weren't attacking each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll be talking about some of those skills. <laughs> how to hear each other. All right, well, any more comments? Maybe we can take one more. I guess um, uh, what I'm hearing is like in communication, if we're able to somewhat embody um, those, that idea of emptiness and get beyond my ideas of conventional self, for a moment, then I can be receptive and hear that person mm -hmm. 
but I wouldn't have to, I would also not want to necessarily like drop no. the sense of an individual eye or a conventional self because that's what gives me the sense of how to draw appropriate boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's complicated. We have to hold both those truths in mind, the conventional and the, the ultimate. Um, because, you, I mean, you're right, like having that conventional self helps us stay safe. And, and also, you know, Mama says a lot, you know, we're not doormats. Um, we're not just going to, you know, whatever the person on the other side is saying, we're not just, just going to be like, oh, okay, everything that you say I'll, we'll just go with. Like, that's not correct either. Um, but we need to find a way to communicate our needs and hear the other people's needs and... Um, in a way that's, yeah, go ahead, Patty. Does that make sense? Sorry, I kind of stumbled around it, but, yeah, okay. I'm not sure if, if this is, you know, I, I get confused, but I think Lama sometimes talks about the, the two rails. Is that what he's referring to? Like the one rail is ultimate truth and one rail is conventional truth, and that, that something somewhat magical can happen in the middle when you're holding both simultaneously. Like there's room, like if we're receptive to the other person without defending strongly the eye, that we're, we're like this eye um, is kind of being worn away by all kinds of experiences and we're, we're actually grateful for the one that challenges that, mm -hmm. that very, because then we can have opportunity to look who is experiencing this right now, especially arises when things are you know, uh, really difficult. Mm. It's fairly vivid. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but then in the middle of those two, when sometimes, not for me, I, I don't have any realization of this, but I know he talks about those two rails. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I think so. Thank you for sharing. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, one more comment, and then we're going to take a break. Main importance, and I, I really agree. Patty, that he talks about that a lot, and the idea that there are two, two rails. There's our conventional self and our non-conventional self, and I think the pitfall is forgetting that this is not the ultimate. And I think as long as you really, really focus on the fact this is not the ultimate. Yes, my my ego self right now can help me uh, with things, but this is not the answer. And I think there's where the you know, the crux of it is. Holding both. All right. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for, like, participating. It really was a great discussion. So um, let's take a seven-minute break and then come back for a meditation. So see you in seven minutes. This has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.